Welcome back to Veritas. I'm Mel Hasselrich. My special guest is Paul Levy. His new book is titled Wetiko, Healing the Mind Virus That Plagues Our World. Now, Paul, let's dive into the Kabbalah for a moment. Let's talk about freedom and duality. Is freedom an important component of duality? In other words, evil offers the option of virtue and sin. Without evil, we wouldn't know what virtue or good is. Without cold, we wouldn't know what hot is. The freedom to choose which which path is part of it. How does this relate to Wetiko? Yeah, no, totally. And that's um, and not just in the Kabbalah, but in so many spiritual traditions and teachers, they'll talk about that evil and freedom. There's a correlation that if we don't have the freedom like to to choose, you know, if everything was good, that would be one universe. But the fact that that we can potentially choose, you know, the dark or the light actually is the very thing that consolates this deeper freedom in our being. And, um, and, you know, in the, in the new book, I have this major chapter on the Kabbalah and it blew my mind when I came across the Kabbalah and I went down that rabbit hole because I began to understand that they were just precisely mapping and pointing at Watiko in their own creative way. And they were pointing out that the real light is to be found in the dark. And and this is in a lot of different traditions, you know, in Gnosticism and alchemy and um, on and on. But the way the, the Kabbalist really articulated this was so inspiring. And it made me understand, oh, my God, I've been a closet Kabbalist all these years. I didn't even know it because I was more and more understanding through my own experience, because I was forced to, because of the trauma I went through, you know, 40 years ago, that by going into the darkness, I think they call it that in Kabbalah, the ascent via the descent, something like that, where it's by going down into the darkness that you discover the true light. And this just psychologically, a very simple way of understanding this is by, you know, just embracing our shadow and both personal and the archetypal, the collective shadow, too, that that becomes the doorway to a deeper light within us. And the more we become aware of the darkness that, you know, we can potentially fall into, paradoxically, the more we get in touch with our light. Yeah, so the Kabbalah just really blew my mind. Who was Sri Aurobindo? And what did he say about Wadiq? I think he called it hostile, the hostile forces, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was another one when I found his work. You know, I mean, I've known his work for years, but I at a certain point, I went down the rabbit hole of Sri Aurobindo's, Aurobindo's teachings. And it also just blew my mind because he was completely pointing at Watiko. He just called the Watiko energy the hostile forces. And he articulated how they tried to stop us and how and how we could deal with it. And so, you know, in the book is a whole chapter on Sri Aurobindo. And, um, you know, and it, it didn't surprise me when I reflected upon it because he was a sage. He was a real great in India. He was considered to be like a real genius, a visionary genius and a real enlightened person. And, of course, what else are they going to be doing but shedding light on Watiko, you know, because – if we're wanting to connect with our light and connect with who we are, 
Well, there's no way around being aware of, well, what threatens the, our light. And of course, ultimately, our, our true nature can't be threatened by anything, but that's only true until, you know, you have to have that realization. But until then, you know, we really have to understand if we're wanting to protect the light, well, what is it that's threatening? What is it that's getting in the way of us fully connecting with our light? And that's, of course, to, you know, um, to illumine Watiko and to point out its strategies. And that's what Sri Aurobindo was doing when he, you know, coined the term the hostile forces. Do these hostile forces have a strategy? Oh, totally. You know, one of, they have a lot of different strategies. I mean, they work through the, the blind spots, the unconscious blind spots. But one of their main strategies is to distract us and to distract us either from the present moment, you know, say if we're getting too close to really our nature, all of a sudden there'll be this pain, oh, my trauma, and we'll just dissociate. And whereas if we would have kept on being present at that edge, we might have connected more deeply with our light. It, but if we disassociate and split from that pain, then yeah, we've lost that opportunity. Or like another strategy of the hostile forces of Watiko is to distract us such that we think that the problem is outside of ourselves or that the solution is outside of ourselves. And as soon as we put our awareness outside of ourselves in that way, we've disconnected from our own true self and we've, we've distracted ourselves from seeing that both the source and the solution of the problem is to be found within. And and like one other of its strategies of the hostile forces or Watiko is um, to the extent that we're um, awakening and we're getting close to our light. The, the hostile forces, you know, you could think of them as these as like sort of this this negative energy, this demon. You could really because keep in mind Watiko psychologically is um you could think of it like in psychology speak it's called an autonomous complex and what happens we have our wholeness and then we get traumatized and then a part of us splits we dissociate and that split part can develop an autonomous seeming life and will of its own and that's called an autonomous complex where you know it'll seem adversarial to us it'll seem as if it's some form of other that's against us but it's actually a split off part of the psyche and the indigenous people, they would call autonomous complexes a demon. And so one of the strategies of the hostile forces of Watiko is when they see somebody plugging into their light and about to like really remember who they are, they will then come and feed off of that emerging light in a way that feeds them like a vampire. They're getting fed by our life force. And then we get distracted or we don't have enough power to accomplish going, going over our edge and connecting with our true selves. And, um, you know, so one, one implication of that is that the greater our proximity to our light and the greater the potentiality we have of connecting with our light, the more the dark forces are going to be attracted to us. And so that's a great reframe. Because then when the demons are attacking us, 
you know, or, oh, I'm really feeling under psychic attack or I'm really feeling this heavy negative emotional energy instead of just interpreting that, you know, like in a personal way, thinking, oh, my God, I have a real problem. We can interpret that like, oh, I'm clearly on the right path or else these negative entities wouldn't be interested. Did Bindo explain what the way out is from these hostile forces? Yeah. And of course, I mean, you know, the way out is, you know, both to actually remember who you are and who you are is like this mirror. And think about a mirror. It's not tainted or stained or made dirty by any object, even the vilest object. It, the mirror will just reflect it back, but the essence of the mirror is untouched by the seeming you know, evil of the object. And he would point out that we, our nature is likened to a mirror in that it's always available, it's always present, and yet we don't see it because it's invisible without the reflections. The reflections, even the negative reflections, help us to see the mirror. If there were no reflections, the mirror by itself is invisible. We'd never notice it. So that's sort of a metaphor for pointing out that our nature, that, you know, the actual Watiko energies in us, think of them as equivalent to the reflections in the mirror, are helping us to see the mirror. And he also points out that another way of envisioning our true self is like the space, the sky. And the space has room for the deepest, darkest thunderclouds. And, and actually, the clouds emerge out of the space. So they're an expression. They're not separate from the true nature. And the clouds, in this example, are equivalent to our thoughts or negative emotions or whatever, any content. And yet, the space is, is completely transcendent to. It has room for. It embraces everything that arises within it. So, so Sri Aurobindo talks about that. And of course, he also talks about the importance of creativity, you know, and that's every, every tradition talks about that, that, um, you know, to the extent, because when we get in touch with our nature, our nature is by its very nature creative. So the more we get in touch with our creative nature, the more we express ourselves creatively. And the more we express ourselves creatively, the more we have a knowing of our nature. It becomes a positive, a positive feedback loop that literally creates light upon light endlessly. And, and that's, that's the zero point energy that we're already plugged into. That's available to us. You see, we already have the solution to our world crises. We possess it. We don't have to first get it from outside of ourselves. Not only do we already possess it, we are it, but we don't know we have it. Or if we're implementing it, we don't know how to implement this incredible creative power that we have. And what I'm pointing out, and it's Watiko who's actually helping us to realize this, and I'm just pointing out that, that we already have. It should be headline news all over the world. The, the solution to the world crises has been discovered. We've already have it, had it. We've had it all along. And and that's what that's what Watiko is trying, is is revealing to us if we have the eyes to see. In the book, you mentioned two great authors, Philip K. Dick and Colleen Wilson. Dick wrote mostly science fiction and Wilson about mysticism, the paranormal, and fictionalized 
nonfiction. How did they describe Batiko and how did they portray it in their respective works? Yeah, so with Wilson, Colin Wilson wrote this incredible book, The Mind Parasites, and it's a work of fiction, right? And he tells this story of that the human species were invaded by this mind parasites that were like a virus that operated through the unconscious of our species, through the blind spots. And they were, it was the greatest danger that humanity ever confronted. And, um, you know, so I have a chapter on that book and I tell the story of Colin Wilson's mind, the mind parasites as a way of showing he was completely pointing at Watiko and he knew it. And, um, but it, it, one way of thinking about it is that the guardians of the, of the threshold, the ones who are the gatekeepers of what you can talk about or what you can't, you know, they, if, you know, in the same way, current day, if we, if somebody is pointing at the truth, you know, and shining light on the lies, they'll get deplatformed, censored, demonetized, and um, have attack pieces come and destroy their reputation. So Colin Wilson, he approached it by just telling a made-up story. But like Picasso says, you know, art is a lie that tells the truth. And so Colin Wilson, in this genius way, was pointing at the Watiko mind virus through this made-up fictional story. Now, Philip K. Dick, it blew my mind so totally when I realized that Philip K. Dick was pointing at Watiko, particularly in, in his personal journal, the exegesis, in his letters. He called it the Black Iron Prison, okay? And he describes in his typical Philip K. Dickian way how the Black Iron Prison works, you know, and how this, like, sort of mind virus gets into the psyche and it captures, like regulatory captures, capturing that's happening nowadays, it captures the immune system of the psyche that's supposedly protecting against invaders so that the immune system, it doesn't recognize it's been invaded. And he just describes the Watiko virus in such an amazing way. And, um, you know, so just those two examples of Colin Wilson and Philip K. Dick, you know, I have chapters on both of them as far as here are creative artists who are actually trying to point light on the Watiko virus. Because, you know, I'll just be honest, the Watiko virus, it's the most important thing to understand in the world today. I mean, there's not even a comparison. In the Castaneda books, Don Juan doesn't use the word Watiko, but he talks, he's pointing at Watiko when he says, this is the topic of topics. If we don't understand what Watiko is revealing to us, we are fated to destroy ourselves. And yet, if we recognize what it's showing us, that's the medicine. And um, it's that simple. And, you know, I mean, I could write a book about it. I've already finished, you know, just came out with my second book. I have a third book coming out on Watiko next year. And I've already started my fourth book because it's so incredibly infinite, this dream of these revelations of how you describe it. And, and I'm just continually trying you know, well, bring in Philip K. Dick, bring in Sri Aurobindo, bring in Colin Wilson, bring in the Kabbalah, bring in mystical Christianity, bring in Buddhism, bring in Hawaiian Kahuna. They're all pointing at Watiko. And I'm just a translator trying to say, hey, look, the apocryphal text of the Bible, they're all pointing at something. And the thing they're pointing at is the very thing that humanity is blind to, because Watiko is a form of blindness. So I'm just a translator trying to connect these dots and help people to see it. 
you know, Philip K. Dick's uh, books, I think it's about 13 of them were made into movies. I'm surprised that Wilson's novel, The, the Mind Parasites, has not been made into a movie. Yeah, no, that would be great. And that would be a great idea um, for someone who's a, a movie person to do that. And or just even to make a film about, you know, because I have so many ideas and of, you know, whether it's a sci fi film or mythology or a fairy tale, you know, or even a, a kid story of, um, you know, like one example, here is like uh, this fairy tale that I'm, I'm in the process of creating with another friend. So imagine there's a land you know, or planet and it's fallen under a, a spell. There's an evil, there's a black magician who's cast a spell and, and people are under the spell and even the greatest, you know, spiritual teachers are under the spell, you know, and they're unwittingly minions of propagating the spell. And then imagine there's a young person and the young person has open eyes and is not under the spell, and is recognizing that, oh my God, there is a massive collective spell, and we're all killing each other. And yet, ultimately, we're all parts of one body. It's like we're cells in a greater organism, but like like sort of this, um, this autoimmune disease, we've turned on ourselves, and we're killing our very selves, and that's an expression of the black magic spell. So then... What I'm what I'm imagining in this fairy tale that I'm creating with a friend is oh then that young person with the open eyes who sees the spell and sees these great spiritual leaders they're very famous and powerful and and all that and highly esteemed and yet they themselves are unwitting instruments for the spell then the question is how would that young person how would he or she intervene in that in, you know it see it like a dream in that in that dream how would they interact with their fellow brothers and sisters how would they interact when they're actually hanging out with those great spiritual teachers in a way to break their spell and in a way that's our situation right now on planet earth do these mind parasites or would Tico have a life cycle yeah, well, that's really interesting because evil, or you could, you know, make an equivalent, you know, say that's Watiko, at least in one of its aspects, that evil is a multi-generational phenomenon. It literally gets passed down via the ancestors. So, in other words, if um, I actually, you know, don't heal my own trauma and wounding, which I've received from my parents then I'm just going to act it out on my kids. And they then they're given the transmission of needing to try to heal the very thing that I didn't deal with in myself. And to the extent they don't metabolize it, they just act it out and give it to their kids. And it gets passed down through the multiple generations. And um, so that's, that's telling us something that what Tico's life cycle, it also is a function of us. We ourselves can stop it just like somebody can do their inner work and break the chain of passing down and propagating the family abuse any one of us can do that and um and that's really the answer to your question that yeah the life cycle of watiko 
it's it's endless. It can inform just multiple generations of abuse upon abuse where we all become, you know, having PTSD and yet it can be stopped and it can be stopped by one person, you know, really doing their work and, and healing themselves. And particularly when a number of people who are doing that connect with each other, get in sync with each other, get in phase with each other, and have the realization that, oh, we actually now, through you know the power of being in connection and recognizing that we're not separate, we can not just dispel our individual family's lineage of Watiko, but the human family lineage of Watiko. And um, and that's really our situation. You know, and actually in one of my next books, in the one coming out next year, I talk about this, that Watiko, it actually that the origin of it might be or very well might be, or is, um, unhealed family abuse. And we all, you know, we all know that because we experience it. You know, yeah, we might have oh, our own stuff, but what part of it is personal and what part of it is either archetypal or collective or ancestral? I was thinking about that. You know the word epigenetics, right? You right. have a great-grandparent who was a smoker, and then the child thinks, oh, he, my father died of lung cancer. I'm going to die of lung cancer. And he keeps smoking and dies of lung cancer. And then the grandchild says the same thing. And the circle, circle repeats until there's one that says, what if I stop smoking? Maybe I'll stop the cycle. Isn't it the same with Wetiko? As you said, if there's child trauma, then the child takes it on their own offspring uh, or their own family, and the circle perpetuates until they stop and they identify that they have a problem. And that's how you stop Watiko? Yeah, well, the thing is, you know, Watiko, you can't just create laws to legislate it out of existence. I mean, right. even though it's good to have, you know, really, you know, this legislation and rules and laws that can help us. I mean, that's definitely a beautiful thing. I'm not saying that, no, we shouldn't do that. But the way to deal, and it's not just me who says this, I mean, in the collective works, Young again and again talks about, um, you know, the insanity of what happens when, when masses get together, when there's a collectivity, but that the solution to that madness is to be found in the individual. So when any of us, you know, do our inner work, however you describe that, owning our shadow, we're individuating, connecting with our wholeness, seeing Watiko, recognizing the dreamlike nature, seeing the non-local field. There's a lot of different ways of, of describing it. But when any one of us does that, it absolutely has a energetic non-local effect on the entire non-local field. And, and one beautiful image um, in one of my books, I talk about this. It's like when you have a glass of water and you have these grains of sugar and you dissolve the grains of sugar one by one in the water and they just dissolve and dissolve and then it reaches the saturation point and you add one more grain of sugar and a crystal spontaneously manifests. And according to Jung, that's a perfect metaphor for how symbols crystallize in the unconscious. Now, keep in mind, when we get off balance, the unconscious comes to our aid by sending us dreams. And the language of dreams are symbols 
And Jung talks about, yeah, the solution comes when we have what's called a reconciling symbol, or he also calls it the transcendent function. The point is that any one of us in this moment recognizing the dreamlike nature, owning our shadow, connecting with our true nature, remembering who we are, could be the very grain of sugar that crystallizes a global spiritual awakening in the collective consciousness of our species. Some say these entities are energy vampires. They thrive on fear, hate, pain, etc. Is this accurate? Yeah. What Hiko, I point out in my book, um, that what Hiko can be likened to a vampire. And, you know, think about it. We all have experiences of vampires. Think about when you hang out with somebody and you feel drained afterwards compared to, as a reference point, when you hang out with somebody who's really inspiring and you feel uplifted or you feel all this energy. That's a reference point to compare. Oh, then this other person, when I'm hanging out with them, I just feel exhausted. Because, yeah, they're they're like, you could say they're an energy vampire. And Watiko is a vampire. I mean, that's a way. You see, there are all these metaphors for describing Watiko. You could say it's a parasite, it's a mind virus, it's a cancer, it's a tapeworm, it's a vampire, it's a demon. And there are just different ways of describing Watiko because the way to, you know, really get a handle on what I'm pointing at, it's like when the quantum physicists, when they discovered the quantum, they themselves said it was like, we in the quantum we had this never seen before animal that we in enclosed in a house in a round house and there were windows all around and we would walk around the house looking into the windows and we would see different angles of this weird quantum never seen before animal and then when we put together the images that we saw through each of the windows it gave us sort of you know a better image a better idea of what the quantum was what we were dealing with and in the same way with Watiko, i'm trying to describe it in this way and that way and from this perspective i'm circumambulating it and trying to describe it psychologically and spiritually and as a vampire and a parasite and a demon and you know and all these different traditions describe it differently and colin wilson describes it this way and philip k dick describes it that way and young calls it totalitarian psychosis and when you put all those images together you get the resolute, you get a higher resolution image of what we're actually dealing with, you know, and that's what I'm trying to do. So yeah, what Hiko, it's definitely like a vampire. And but the point is, is, you know, when we so what happened for me, it was with my abuse from my father without going into the story. And I think I might even have have spoken to you about this in previous um, in times we've spoken. It was my boundaries got so completely obliterated by the energetic abuse it was like something entered me that wasn't me it was like i got a transfusion of the watiko virus and one way of describing my subjective experience it was as if i got bit by a vampire and it wanted to make me its host it wanted to turn me into a vampire and so it radically reconfigured and changed the entire trajectory of my of my life because all of a sudden i had a big problem and i had to deal with that and I'm still a work in, pro in process. But the point is, what I'm trying to say is that I've somehow had it out with that vampire that I encountered through my father that came into me. And more and more and more, I'm extracting this incredible gift. And that's what's informing my teachings. And that's what's informing my work. And that's what's informing my books. And 
And what I'm describing, this is the deeper. Now, I'm no shaman, you know, only in my wildest dreams am I a shaman. But the shamanic archetype was definitely got activated in me through this process of all of a sudden of abuse and encountering this vampire. And, and the point is, we're all shamans in training. That's one of the major archetypes that's constellated in the collective psyche of humanity at this moment. But think about what a shaman is. A shaman will actually take on the illness of the person they're working with, you know, and they will literally fall ill. And taking on has a double meaning. It means they'll, by taking it on, they'll wrestle with it. They'll have it out with this illness. But taking it on also means they'll take it within themselves and they will literally fall ill. That's the shamanic archetype. The shaman then experiences the illness of the person or the community they're working with from the inside and they will subjectively experience that illness. They'll fall ill and they'll experience what it is from the inside. But then instead of staying ill, which then they would need a shaman to heal them, that process becomes the doorway, the portal through which they even more deeply connect with their wholeness. And once they do that, then that illness gets metabolized in them and they might have a wound from it because an encounter with, you know, these sort of daimonic energies, these higher dimensional energies is a wounding experience. According to Jung, an encounter with the higher self is always a wounding experience for the for the ego. It's similar to an exorcist. When they exorcise a demon, they get wounded, you know, and the greater the demon, the more powerful, the greater their wound. But then that they become the wounded healer. That wound becomes an open portal to their gifts. And that's just like the shaman. And so when when that shaman wounded healer, because those are equivalent terms, when they then through that process of being wounded and taking on the illness and falling sick, more deeply connect with their wholeness, they then are actually non-locally, energetically making that healing available to the community or to the person or to the non-local field. And the point is, we are all shamans in training and we've all been made sick by the collective sickness in our world. And to the extent any of us do our work like a shaman, we're actually making it more probable that that healing that we've accessed in ourselves, that that'll be more easily accessible for other people in the field. We sometimes encounter people, and I'm sure you have too, who lack the empathy and compassion chip. You see the way they treat people, the, the way they treat animals. And it makes me wonder, as if they're devil's puppet, is this what happens when these entities take over? A psychic coup d'etat happens. Yeah, that's exactly right. I described that in my book. It really is a psychic coup d'etat. And they become like the devil's marionette. And um, you see, when people are taken over by Watiko, not only are they blind, like I was describing, it's a form of psychic blindness, but it hardens their heart. It closes their heart. And um, and this, even in the Bible, there's I, I have a section in my new book where I point out, I, I show, not just in the apocryphal text, but in the actual Bible itself, there are all there's all this talk about a mind blindness and that it's related to a hardening of the heart, a coldness of the heart. And that when we, you know, fall prey to that, you know, which is to fall prey to Watiko, um, then there's no empathy. There's no compassion. We don't recognize our interconnection with other people. And then we just see other people as like these objects 
and we we see them through the lens of oh what can we get out of them how can they how can i exploit them how can they serve me and and that's you know that's such a pathological point of view that's actually being played out collectively on the world stage you know through the evil that's getting enacted in the world today but yeah that lack of empathy is like um is a real expression of that somebody you know um is really afflicted with watiko i'm sure every listener that that's listening to us right now has gone through that whether in life in in the corporate world at their jobs they've encountered someone who doesn't care how to get to point b from point a and uses absolutely no feel. It's almost like you look at them and there's no one inside. They're soulless. But uh, are these parasites separate from ourselves or do they become part of the host, if I may use the term host? Yeah. Well, no. First off, you're totally right about when some people are so taken over that there's. it's as if there's no one home. It's as yeah. if they're hollow and they're just, you know, they might feel like they've never felt more themselves. And meanwhile, unwittingly, Beneath their awareness, their vehicle of their mind and body is just, they're just being um, an instrument for, you know, this parasite um, to enact itself. And, you know, that that's a real thing. I mean, there are people, and another way of saying that is that then they, they've lost their soul. They don't have a soul and, um, and all that. Now, these parasites, you know, it's so... If you, you know, you think about what Tico is a mind parasite or um, think about it like a tapeworm. When we get when we have a tapeworm in us, it'll secrete chemicals such that we start to crave food that feeds it. And all the while we think we're feeding ourselves, but we're unwittingly feeding the tapeworm and it grows bigger, you know, until it kills us. But it doesn't want to kill us too soon, you know, because then it would suffer the inconvenience of having to find a new host. But yeah. In a sense, from one point of view, because think about this being a dream, there are these different dimensions that simultaneously exist. There's the relative dimension, and on that relative dimension, these parasites are other and are, you know, something we need to protect ourselves from. But from the ultimate, absolute point of view, there's no other. There's no separation. I mean, in quantum physics, the way they express this is that, oh, this is a quantum universe through and through on every scale. And in a quantum universe, there's no separate parts interacting. There's no separation at all. It's seamlessly whole. And so from that point of view, these parasites are not separate from our own energy, from our own psyche, from who we are. And yet from the relative point of view, we absolutely have to treat them as if they're separate and other to protect ourselves from them. Tell me about Wilson's character in the mind parasite, Dr. Austin. Tell me about the stealth-like tactics of the mind parasite he talked about, almost like radar jamming, but in this case, a mind jamming device. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's related to what I was talking about before about the regulatory capture. So they, 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 he described it in really cool fictionalized terms of being like a radar jamming or a mind jamming device where that part of the immune system of the psyche that's, you know, protecting us because the immune system doesn't, isn't just physical that is protecting us against pathogens that are poisonous, but also you could think of a psychological immune system and um, that protects us from taking in like negative energies or negative thought forms 
we're being overly affected by negative emotions in ways that don't serve us. And so he was, you know, through the medium of fiction, he was actually describing um, how Watiko works because Watiko and Philip K. Dick was doing the same thing in his own way. Um, they were both describing how the the mind virus of Watiko it actually fools the immune system of the psyche to think that Watiko is actually this nutrient and is a good thing. And then that's how Watiko sets up shop within the psyche. And then at a certain point, it lodges itself so deeply in the psyche, it becomes so entrenched that it becomes really hard to evict. And, um, yeah, so I just love, I just love that Colin Wilson and Philip K. Dick, they're just, you know, through the, the medium of fiction or, or sci-fi are actually, you know, describing, you know, the real reality that seems so far out, but it's actually what's actually happening. And it's so imperative for us to wake up to what they're pointing at. In a section of your book, you mentioned fake fakes. You say with Tico or BIP, by the way, let, let me go back for a second because I want to discuss this BIP. What's the black iron prison Philip K. Dick talked about? Yeah. So Philip K. Dick, he coined a term, the black iron prison, the BIP, um, which is completely just another name for Watiko. And so if you remember, I was saying that Watiko is a counterfeiting spirit. That's what it says in the apocryphal text. And um, so it impersonates us, right? And so, and that's how it fools us. So we, we give ourselves away, we identify with its false version of ourselves, and then it has us. That's its strategy. And um, what Philip K. Dick, and this blew my mind when I just realized what he was doing, he didn't leave it there. He was just like, you know, oh yeah, that's just, you know, a description of the, the tactic of Watiko. But then he brought in, but the higher self, what it does, and it does this work on the sly without letting Watiko or the Black Heart in prison know, it then impersonates the impersonator in a way to fool the impersonator like back into the higher self. And he calls this a fake fake. And so in my book, I describe this process and it's all just, you know, I'm quoting Philip K. Dick. And it was brilliant. It was just like, you know, such a brilliant way of describing because think about it. Think about there's the higher self, and then there's this counterfeiting spirit, and it impersonates the higher self, and it you know it then fools us, and, and we're like caught by this illusion. Well, then what Philip K. Dick was uh, in an imaginative way dreaming into was, oh yeah, well, what would be the response of the higher self? Let me creatively imagine that, and and so that's where Philip K. Dick got the idea of a fake fake. That of course the higher self would just impersonate, you know, Watiko who, you know, in a way that would fool Watiko, just like Watiko fooled the person, now the higher self is fooling Watiko back into, you know, having the recognition of who we are. So it's just brilliant the way he describes it, and I can't really do justice, you know, to how he said it, because he said it in his typical Philip K. Dickian way. And I don't know why, Paul, but every single day, and I don't watch the news, sometimes I watch it just to see what they're planning. But it's this gaslighting every single day. And I'm thinking of the black iron prison for, for a moment here, because the more information we get, 
I don't know why people still believe in all this stuff, but could it be that they're just this virus is trying to penetrate and those of us who critically think are immune to it in a way? Yeah, well, it's not only critically thinking, you know, that makes us immune, but also having the humility of, of having the realization that at any moment we could fall under the spell of Watiko. Right. So if we see somebody and, you know, when they're possessed by Watiko at a given moment and we think they have Watiko and we don't, well, that polarized attitude, that itself is an expression that we've fallen under the thrall of Watiko. The idea being when you see somebody with Watiko, you know, who's embodying it at a given moment, like any of us can fall into our unconscious and do that unwittingly to recognize, oh, that's reflecting the part of us judging that potentially can do that. Yeah, that we're judging and that can potentially fall under that spell. That's the humility that combined with having critical thinking, because what Tico, it disables our discernment. And it's really important to be able to, to discern, you know, it's never been more important to discern the truth from lies right now. And it's never it's it's never been more important to do that. And it's never been harder to do it. And that's, you know, whether that's engineered by, you know, people or the media or the powers that be, or like I'm suggesting, Watiko is the deeper formless archetype. And so discernment, critical thinking, having humility, and also with the awareness that we are in a way, we're in World War Three. We're in the world the yes. war is not it's not like it was in World War Two with bombs and all that. And it's not even with nuclear war. It's a war on consciousness. It's a war on our mind. And that's why it's so incredibly important. I can't say this enough for us to really, you know, connect with our awareness and do our inner work and expand our consciousness as, you know, as best as we're able each day. And um, because you begin to realize, wait a second, I'm by being creative, I'm creating my experience right now. I'm creating my experience of myself. And I'm creating my experience of the world. There's no one else who's doing that. I'm doing that. Yeah, there are people who are trying to manipulate me or propagandize me or whatever, manipulate me, whatever. But what I do with that, how I interpret that, the meaning I place on things, that's my doing. I'm creating that. I'm literally creating myself each and every moment, or at least my experience of myself. And... Um, you know, so when we're actually in touch with our creative agency, in a way, that's the medicine for Watiko. And that's the way that we then become um, sort of a real um, proactive agent in this war on consciousness. Because if we fall under the spell in a certain way and fall asleep, then, you know, we're actually part of the problem. Then we're not part of the solution, you know so important what you said that people i say that to, to many people and they don't believe me that this is world war three it's right here and we the truth warriors are the enemy and we must fight until the end because if we don't we won't have a world in the future and it's a uh, anti-information what we see and, and and judging so we become part of wetiko but can wetiko metastasize like a cancer in in society instead of a uh, just individuals but as a whole and make its way to the body politic, the, the economy, uh, et cetera. And is this what we're seeing today in the current geopolitical arena? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, so there's a couple things. You mentioned the word, um, what was it, um, anti-information. Yeah. Like I think Philip K. Dick calls it an anti-information virus. And and what that mean, what he means by that term is not um, – is that the term? I think so. Yeah, it's like anti – I think you had just said it. I think it was anti-information. But what he means by that is that instead of hallucinating what isn't there, we're not able to see what is in front of our face. Okay, and so um, that's that's this this blind spot once again. And then the other thing you mentioned about the cancer, I have a whole chapter on um, and it's about, you know, sort of the financial economic realm. But it's it's looking at what from the point of view of it being a cancer that's metastasizing in the greater body politic of of our species. And, and one way to understand this I mean, think about it if, as you know, we're all, we can be likened to cells in a greater organism. And we all depend on each other, just like each of the organs in that body. Think about the physical, the human body. Each of the organs depends on the other organs for their survival. We all depend on each other for our survival as cells in a greater organism. But if some of, say, if one of those organs or if some of those cells if they just like really just capture, you know, uh, an overwhelming majority of the nutrients that are going to that body and or of the resources in that body and they just don't share them and keep them for themselves. Well, that will kill every cell, including itself. OK, and that's the nature of our situation in that there is so there's such an incredible inequality of wealth and of course that always leads to fascism and um you know and that that leads to destruction you know of everyone including the people who have the wealth and instead of sharing the resources and making sure that everybody has what they need and that there's enough food for people instead of that there are certain you could say psychopathic people who Instead of being super wealthy and and figuring out ways to share that wealth that generates more wealth for everyone, for the biosphere, for all of us, for the whole, they're just like so afflicted with the Watiko and they see themselves as so separate that they're just trying to expand their own wealth at the expense of everyone else and they exploit other people. Like Watiko is called, um, it's it's a disease of exploitation. And, and so that's like a cancer. And just like cancer metastasizes in the body and can kill the person, there's a psychological form of cancer that's metastasizing through the collective psyche that is potentially killing us. But the good news is that when you recognize that, when you actually recognize what it's revealing to us again and again, I come back, back to that. Watiko is a revelation. It's a living revelation. It's showing us exactly what we need to understand in order to heal it. Instead of, for example, with viruses, how they mutate once we get, you know, like sort of medicine for them, Watiko, it forces us to mutate. And so it's catalyzing our evolution. It's helping us to plug into our divine endowment and really to, you know, express our incredible creative agency and power. That's our nature. You know, but once again, if we don't, just like in a dream, if you have a recurring dream, well, you, there's a message encoded in that dream. 
And as long as you don't get it, the dream is just guaranteed to recur again and again and again in more and more amplified form until you get the message. This is a collective dream. That's what quantum physics has discovered. That's what I began to tap into when I had my awakening in 1981. We're having a collectively shared dream. Watiko is a dreamed up phenomena. If we don't get the message, it's a revelation showing us something. We're guaranteed to have a recurring dream, which becomes a nightmare. And it becomes more and more amplified again and again and again until we get the message. And that's what I'm trying to help people to see. And there's some positiveness from this. I hear from people who say, Mel, things are getting worse. And to that I say, things are not getting worse. They're becoming visible. It's as if we've been in this slumber for a long time. And at least for me, 9-11, now this pandemic, have made a lot of people wake up. And they may be considered by family and friends as having gone crazy. So the question for you, Paul, is are we humans terminally insane or just waking up? Yeah, and that I appreciate that question. That's one of the titles of a chapter in my book. And um, and there is no answer to that because it's a quantum question. Are we terminally insane? Well, we shall see. You know, is our disease fatal? We shall see. Are we going to destroy ourselves? We shall see. Or are we waking up? We shall see. You see, both potentialities are right there encoded, hidden within our moment of history, you know, and how it's going to manifest, whether we're going to just destroy the biosphere, the life support system of the planet, and destroy ourselves. And, um, you know, it, that's very, very possible. And that, that capability is within our hands. I mean, absolutely. But there's also the possibility that we could potentially awaken. And here's the thing to contemplate, which is really interesting. You see, quantum physics points, so I, I mentioned, I offer it, because in, in, in my last book, it was about quantum physics, and I pointed out that quantum physics is offering us the medicine for Watiko. And um, in that, it's showing that this is a dream, that there's nothing objective, that the act of observing influences the universe observed, you know, which is expression of the dreamlike nature, which is to say that our, our act of perception moment by moment is creative, that we have this incredible creative power that we are not aware of. That's the, the, the revelation of quantum physics. And that actually, because as soon as we think of the world as objective, we're then a subject that's relative to the object. We're in relationship to an object. So, and then we're caught in that, in that dualistic frame of reference. We're identified with this skin encapsulated ego. So as soon as we see the world as being objective, separate from us, we in, you know, in that same moment, we've conjured ourselves up to be a seeming subject who's actually subject to the world. And, and that's opens the door for Watiko, you know, cause then we're identified with who we're not. But, Here's one of the other ways that quantum physics is offering us the medicine. And this goes back to your question, you know, are we taking ourselves down or, or dreaming ourselves awake is another way of saying it. And that is quantum physics is saying, okay, the world is made of quantum events of these quantum entities. And what is the nature of these quantum entities? They exist in a state of potentiality each and every moment in every possible state that could ever be that quantum entity 
exists in potential in those states up until the moment it's observed, and then one particular state will actualize, and all the rest will vaporize as if you know they never existed going into parallel universes. And that process that I just described is happening at each and every moment. And what the quantum physicists discovered, they said, even if one of those potentialities is highly, ridiculously unlikely, it could still manifest this very moment. Now, to make, to flesh that out, what that means is that even the highly, seemingly, ridiculously improbable possibility that humanity could awaken in this moment, quantum physics says, oh, that's completely in the realm of possibility. And I would say, and then if you're not imagining that, then what are you thinking? Because if you're just caught by despair and pessimism and depression, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, then you're going to draw evidence confirming your pessimism. And the more you see pessimistically, the more you dream up a world which proves to you that, you know, the truth of your pessimism. And then you're a part of the problem. And so what I'm pointing out is that there's this incredible um, potentiality for us having an up-leveling of consciousness and having, you know, a genuine awakening, a global awakening. And one way I actually describe this to make it even more clear, so say you're in a dream, right? Imagine for a moment you're in a dream and you're holding a viewpoint in that dream, right? Now think about what a dream is. A dream is nothing other than, you know, the reflection of your mind, right? And so if you're holding a viewpoint, that dream will, in that moment, reflect back your viewpoint, giving you all the evidence confirming that what you're seeing exists objectively, because the dream is reflecting that back to you, because the dream is nothing other than a reflection of your viewpoint, of your own mind. And now that you have proof and you have evidence confirming the seeming objective truth of your viewpoint, you even more see it that way. You become more fixed in that viewpoint. And the more fixed you are in that viewpoint, for example, oh, what I'm seeing is true. It's objectively true. This universe is objective. The more the universe will reflect back as if it's objective ad infinitum. And that's a, a self-reinforcing feedback loop whose origin is within your own mind. And what I've just described you've just hypnotized yourselves by your own creative genius. And that's how Atiko works. And and that's the pathology. We have this incredible reality creating power, each one of us. We already have it each and every moment. But to the extent we're not awake to it, remember what I said, Watiko plugs into our creativity to serve its agenda. And it turns our own creativity against us. So I'm just trying again and again in as many ways as I can imagine to point out, you know, both to see the nature of the beast we're dealing with and to see the incredible, like, good news and creative genius that we all are. I really think that whenever the powers that be or want to be, uh, whenever they notice that the world's population starts reaching a point of enlightenment or awakening, they introduce a worldwide event, a reset. So it stops that natural process of evolution we're all going through. In other words, they stop the caterpillar from becoming a butterfly time and time again. You see what I'm getting at? Yeah, uh, but I, I see it differently because I see that point of view 
that's from one point of view. And from another point of view, I mean, think about it. Think about the the pandemic, you know, and um, think about, you know, let's let's just imagine that it was, you know, engineered or at the very least, the darker powers exploited, you know, um, the the virus to, you know, to fulfill a, a sinister agenda. Right. So that seems to be obscuring our evolution. And yet, at the same time, it's propelling our evolution. Because think about how many people, people were saying to me, oh my God, this is surreal. Exactly. It's easier to recognize the dreamlike nature because things have gotten more dreamlike. Think about, yeah, some people have gotten really stressed out and more into their addictions and checked out or become like zombies. Okay, that's true. And there are other people who have gotten like unbelievably creative as a response. So, these events that you're describing, are they obscuring the evolution of our species? Well, they might be. It depends how we dream it. Or are they stimulating and propelling and catalyzing the evolution of our species? Well, it could be that too. It depends upon how we dream it. We're the dreamers. Is the term Watiko the same as archons, Paul? Yeah. Yeah. So every spiritual tradition has been pointing at Watiko. And in Gnosticism, they talk about the archons, and the archons are these mind parasites. I mean, it's just, you know, word for word, Watiko. And the word archon, it actually means governor or the ruler. And like I was describing with the totalian psychosis, you know, of Jung, that, you know, when Watiko gets in a human psyche, it literally creates a shadow government and it becomes the ruler. And the person becomes, you know, the devil's marionette or like a puppet on a string. And it's the Archon or Watiko, or um, in Hawaiian Kahuna, they call it Iipa. There's all these names, all these symbols, but they're all pointing at the same thing. And the thing they're pointing at is the, the one very thing that we're blind to. And that's why they're pointing at it. And so, yeah, that's just an example. I'm glad you brought that up. The Archons, you know, is really an equivalent term for Watiko. You wrote an entire section titled The Coronavirus on the Watiko Virus, which I'm glad. You say that COVID-19 is symbol of a much deeper infection. Can you explain? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I talk about, well, on the one hand, so yeah, the whole last section in my book is about COVID. And, you know, but it, I'm pointing at or I'm talking about COVID in a way to help us see Watiko. And I'm pointing out that um, on the one hand, the COVID pandemic is Watiko. You know, and I can, I'm trying to show people how to see that. One other way of saying that is that COVID, the actual coronavirus, is a lower level emanation of the higher dimensional mind virus of Watiko. Now, here's, I'll, I'll explain that a little bit. So if we think that COVID is actually just a physical virus, no, we're mistaken. It's not just physical. Think about it. COVID has impacted every aspect of all of our lives. What we do, what we think, what we wear, what we think about, what we dream, how we interact with each other. It's it's um, impacted politics, the economy, you know, the, the social structure of our culture and society. The point is, is that COVID has multiple vectors of operation. There's the physical aspect of it. There's the spiritual aspect, the emotional, the mental, the psychological. It 
it impacts every aspect of our lives and our behavior, like I've been saying. And so to, to begin to see that, that COVID has what I call either an operational body or a subtle body or an energetic body that's multi-vectored. It's not just physical. And then you begin to realize, oh, wait, so it's changing our behavior. It's changing. Well, how is it changing our behavior? Well, or how is it changing the laws that have been implemented? Oh, you have to wear a mask and you have to get a vaccine or whatever. How is it doing that? Like, how does that process happen? Well, any and all of those processes are mediated through the human psyche. Well, guess what? The human psyche is the arena of Watiko. And so what I'm pointing at, just like quantum physics points out that ultimately there's no difference between matter and mind. There is no difference between like, you know, um, what's been happening in our world, all the impact of um, the coronavirus and the what you call mind virus that at a certain point they become indistinguishable. And when you begin to see that, you begin to recognize that there is a way of viewing what's happening in our world, you know, through the coronavirus global pandemic that actually helps us to see the mind virus of Watiko because Watiko, it can't stand to be seen. It will do everything to make sure you don't see it. It will distract you. It will, you know, just, it has a whole toolbox to try to make sure you don't see it because when you see it, you take away its power and you empower yourself. Now I'll give you an example of a dream I had. One of my teachers, this great Tibetan Lama was visiting me a few years ago. I was hosting him and I've known him for 40 years. He's like family. And you know, he was staying in my bedroom and I, you know, I gave him and his attendant my house and I just stayed in the neighborhood. And so for the week, he slept in my bed and then he left. And the very first night that I slept in my bed, I had this incredible dream. And I right away, when I woke up, I, the dream felt like it was a gift from him, like almost like his energy was infusing the pillow or my bed, or at least I was imagining it was almost like he put a little chocolate underneath the pillow. It was a gift and the gift was the dream. And in the dream, I found myself in this like inner sanctum. And, um, and there were these like little gremlin hobgoblin type figures and I was seeing them and they were shocked because no one else or hardly anyone else ever had ever stumbled upon their secret abode. And they weren't happy to put it mildly that I was onto them and I was seeing them. So they immediately shapeshifted and took on a different form. And then I saw them in their new form. And as soon as I saw them in their new form, they saw that I saw them and then they shapeshifted. It was like they had a living intelligence and they were aware of my awareness. And they, the last thing they wanted was to be seen. And then I woke up and I right away recognized, oh my God, I, you know, that was, I was, you know, seeing Watiko in action. And so that's what I mean, that there are ways, and I continually am circumambulating and pointing out in my book as many ways as I can imagine of seeing Watiko. And one of them is through seeing COVID through the lens that I was just trying to describe right now, that when you begin to see the deeper dreaming process that's unfolding in our world, you begin to realize that COVID, 
though like seemingly destroying things, is actually helping us to see Watiko. You know, but once again, how is that going to manifest? Is is COVID going to just take us down into totalitarianism or even worse? Or is it going to help us to wake up? That depends if enough of us recognize what is being revealed through Watiko. It's definitely a fork in the road. I have one last question. It's a multi-pronged question because I have to ask you this. You say the coronavirus contains its own vaccine and that Watiko has encoded within it its own medicine. Address that and what is also the quantum medicine for the coronavirus and what is the cure for Wetiko? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally. So, yeah, I'm saying that Wetiko is a quantum phenomena. And, you know, think about nature of light. Well, sometimes it's a particle, sometimes it's a wave. It depends on how it's observed. And um, so the thing with Wetiko is that it's the source of the greatest evil imaginable, both individually and species-wide. You know, it is the source of all of the evil that's played out throughout history, and yet secretly encoded, hidden within the pathology, is its own vaccine, is its own medicine, and not just its own medicine, not just its own cure, but it actually helps us to wake up. It's helping us to evolve. Watiko is the greatest catalyst of human evolution that we've ever known or that we've not known and we can potentially know. And, um, you know, just as an example, like what I was saying is that it's helping us to um, have the recognition of who we are. It's helping us to recognize the dreamlike nature. It's unlocking. You see, Watiko, it both spurns our creativity and it spurs our creativity simultaneous okay both obscures our creativity people feel oh i'm not creative i'm stuck well you're so creative you've created the subjective experience of in your infinite creativity you've created the in the the subjective experience of feeling like you're not creative and that itself is an expression of your creativity that's how creative you are when people say they're not creative you know And I'm always interested, what is that story that's stopping people? They, we internalize, you know, in our mind, a story, a belief that, oh, no, I can't, I'm not good enough, um, I'll get ridiculed, I'll be judged, people withdraw their love if I, like, try to be creative and it's not, like, perfect or something like that. So then we preemptively stop ourselves from even trying. Well, that's Watiko. Well, Watiko, so it stops us from being creative, but it actually... There's this incredible creative tension that all of us are feeling. I mean, it's really what the cross symbolizes. It's a veritable crucifixion of the ego. And if we're able to hold that creative tension out of that, as Jung points out, comes the reconciling symbol, the transcendent function. In other words, the creative spirit, the holy and whole-making spirit that is our nature. Okay? And why did that happen? Because of Watiko. Watiko actually catalyze that that's so it's not only just healing itself it actually is giving us a blessing that's what i need you see somebody was asking me just this past week about what and i said the worst thing i could ever imagine in my wildest dreams were was that if what would disappear then we'd be truly in trouble and and she was shocked and i explained to her i said well look 
you know, uh, just think of the Bible. When after the Last Supper, I think when when Peter knew that the Romans were coming to arrest Christ, right, which would eventuate in his crucifixion, and he was trying to hide Christ from being arrested. And what did Christ say to Peter? Get thee behind me, Satan. Okay, because he knew that he had to go through the the Christ event, the crucifixion, or there would not be the salvation of humanity, or there would not be the resurrection. He knew that. So in other words, that's the analogy, that if we just completely got rid of Watiko, we would stop evolving. Then we'd be really in dire straits, okay? So Watiko is actually an incredible blessing in a very convincing disguise that it's not. It's actually helping us to awaken. So it's that, it's exactly that that I mean. Have I missed anything important that I should have asked you? The only thing, the only thing I just, that fell in my mind right now is that the Watiko, the Watiko dissolver par excellence is compassion. Okay. And, um, and compassion arises when we recognize, like in Buddhism, they talk about emptiness and emptiness is another word for like having this lucidity is recognizing, wow, this being a dream, we're not separate. We're interconnected. And, um, and when you have that realization of the, the dreamlike nature, when you have lucidity, when you recognize the emptiness, the natural energetic expression of that is compassion. And when you have genuine compassion, that's kryptonite to Watiko. And so when people ask me, oh, how can I recognize the dreamlike nature? Yeah, in, in Buddhism, they say when you awaken, and in a dream and have real lucidity it's always the co-joining of emptiness and compassion of of lucidity and compassion so if we want to recognize the dreamlike nature and have this be the lucid dream that we're waking up in and if we want to dissolve Wartiko, to the extent we're able to cultivate genuine compassion that's the way so that's really the only thing i, I want to add or as you say Wartiko is the greatest catalyst for human evolution how can people buy Watiko, Healing the Mind Virus that Plagues Our World, and your other books? And learn more about your work too, Paul. Yeah, for sure. So on the one hand, you can definitely get, you know, the book on Amazon. Um, and it just went, it's been on, since it's been out, it's been, you know, 90% of the time, number one on the new releases in, in New Thought or Spiritual and Mental Healing. So it's really, you know, more and more people are hearing about the word Watiko. So you can get it on Amazon or you can go to my website www.awakeninthedream.com and you can get autographed copies um, from my site and um, you know there's and my other books are there too and then a um, ton of articles interviews all for free the site isn't monetized you know except if you want to do a private session with me you can or you can buy my book But other than that, it's all free because I just want to get this information out. So just go um, to, just if you want to awaken in the dream, go to awaken in the dream. I, I just thought of that. That's kind of cool. Paul Levy, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an enlightening discussion, which is always needed, especially in this new year. All the best with your book and the new year. Yeah, I just really appreciate it, Mel. I can't thank you enough, really. Thank you. Thank you. And that was Paul Levy helping us get rid of this collective mind parasite called Wadiko. As always, I want to thank you, Veritas member, 
thank you for paving our through journey another week. And tonight, I leave you with a quote by Matt Kahn. If you thank your mind, it will relax. If you thank your heart, it will open. If you thank your past, it will integrate. If you thank your symptoms, they will heal. If you thank your shadow, it will vanish. If you thank your life, it will transform. And if you thank yourself, the light will dawn. Thanks for listening. I'm Mel Hostelrick. Until next week, be well. <laughs>